Good morning, everyone. Oh, look, it's, uh, it is a real privilege to be able to share with you this morning, and I never take it for granted. I hope you don't take anything for granted, not even today. It's a gift. I got a sharp reminder of my mortality a couple of weeks ago. I was driving Piper home from school, and she just looked over at me and she said, Pa, she said, are you going to be alive when I have kids? <laughs> I said, darling. I said, I hope so. <laughs> depends, when, depends when you're going to have kids. And she said, oh, well, it doesn't matter, she said, because I've got some amazing stories I'm going to tell them about you. And I thought, well, that's sweet. But it did remind me of all the things that interact between me and Piper over the years, the stories remain. She's seen something in our relationship as a grandfather and a granddaughter, and she wants to tell those stories. Look, as we think about Anzac Day, and I'm going to move from Anzac Day to the cross a little later, but as we think about Anzac Day, which now has this primary significance in the psyche of our nation and around the world. Part of the reason for that is the amazing stories of courage, sacrifice and mateship. And we've heard some of those already on the radio this morning. In fact, I I heard a story about how a cat has been honoured. We don't just honour human beings now, we honour cats. You can go to a cemetery in, in London and see this knighted cat uh, I probably won't be there, but you can do that if you need to. But another reason why I think that Anzac Day is now such a, a significant part of the psyche of our nation is that we've lost something and we're not sure where to find it. The shift over the last uh, maybe 20, 30 years in the Western world and certainly in Australia towards secularisation has abandoned this big story of God, which in one way until 30, 40 years ago was our story, the story of which our very culture and which our very laws and which our very fabric of our society was based on, that story now has gone. And we're looking for something to replace it because every culture, every family, every nation needs to have a big story. Even Piper knows that at nine years of age. Something that hangs us together. And subtly, even unknowingly, Christianity has been that story in Australia because of our heritage. But things have changed. You don't need me to tell you how much has changed, but things like mateship that we've heard so much about today has been replaced by Facebook. Uh, very subtly. Technology has become our new security. Public opinion has become our new morality. Opinion polls have become the new compass. Science has become our new religion. Uh, We've found new things to live for, but we've lost that thing worth dying for. Do you know what I mean by that? What we remember today is that men and women died for people they didn't even know. Today, we're an incredible generation because we know what to live for. Not so much what to die for. I think Anzac Day goes a long way to capturing 
that big story that a nation needs. You know, 10 years ago, it was on the 10th of June, 2011, Lynn and I were able to visit Turkey. And we visited the ancient cities, biblical cities of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamon and, you know, all those uh, towns in the seven cities of Asia in Revelation chapter 2 and, and 3. But I remember on the 10th of June 2011 as our tour bus pulled up at the Lone Pine Memorial at the top of Gallipoli Beach. I stepped off the bus and there was this involuntary flood of tears. And I was so embarrassed, I had no idea what was going on. Until I looked around and everybody was flooded with tears. And it dawned on me that this was it. This was the big story of our nation. It was compelling. It was consuming. It was emotional. This was the day where on the 25th of April 1915, 16,000 Anzac troops marched onto that beach and by the end of the day, 2,000 Australian and New Zealand soldiers would die. This was the very place where over the next 10 months, 250,000 Allied troops would be wounded and 46,000 would die. 8,700 of them would be Australian and New Zealand soldiers. And here I was standing on the very spot that was part of my big story. I didn't know what to do. I stood there and cried like a baby with everybody else. And then I went down to the, I don't know what they call it, the Wall of Remembrance, where you'll see when they finally have Anzac services again after COVID. And I saw seven young Aussie girls sitting on the wall, draped in one ginormous Australian flag. Do you know what I thought? I wanted to go home and make it law that every 16-year-old boy or girl should have to pay a visit to that wall. Because when I talked to those girls, you know what they said? We know what's been done for us. We know the sacrifice that was made for us. You know, there's something that calls out deep inside when you see that and you think, this is the way it's supposed to be. Uh, this is deeper than my selfishness, my consumerism, my knowledge, my needs, all the stuff I get caught in back home. Here is something that draws me into a world that I would never normally be drawn into. Something more significant than having 10,000 Facebook friends or even two for that matter. Something more than all the technological toys that I can amass. Because here was the sacrifice of men and women who never knew me, but they died for me. A uh, long time ago now, it's back in 2005, in fact I've been there twice, I've been privileged to go to a little unheard of village in the north of France called Fran Villas. 
Anybody visited there on your tourist treks? That's good. There's only about 30 people live there. You know what makes that place sacred? My great uncle is buried there. He served in places like Bullecourt, the Somme, Ypres, among other places. He died of wounds on the 24th of April, 1918, one day before his 27th birthday. At the time of his death, he was a driver with the 55th Australian Field Artillery Battle, a battery on the Somme. He's one of the privileged ones that has a gravestone in a military cemetery. And as I knelt down before that tombstone or that gravestone, I read his name, I read his number, and down the bottom there was this little text that said, greater love has no man than this. And then I looked at the next one and it was on there and the next one and the next one. Greater love has no man than this. And again, in that place, I thought, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is life. Because these men knew what to die for. Time to reveal. You've got no idea how special this little box is. This cabinet was made as a memorial to my great-uncle, Richard Lindsay Gadd. I've also been to Ypres, which was one of the most incredible places during the First World War. In fact, Winston Churchill said, if I could make a memorial of one place in the whole of Europe, it would be Ypres. There were no hills or valleys or rivers to hide from. This was where soldiers ran straight into battle and knew their fate. The Ypres Cathedral was one of the most magnificent cathedrals in Europe and it was raised to a bunch of rubble. And soldier friends of my great uncle went to the Ypres Cathedral and they managed to take some oak from that cathedral and they made this little cabinet to give to my great uncle's sister who happens to be my nana. And my nana gave it to me for safekeeping. And she said, Neil, never forget. And so on the front of that, you can read it afterwards, it said that that cabinet was made from oak taken from the ruins of the Ypres Cathedral, being portion of wood from which the cross was made, which was placed on the grave of Richard Lindsay Gadd, who died of wounds on the 24th of April 1918 and buried at Fran Villas. This is the way it's supposed to be. Don't you want friends like that? Don't you want relationships like that? That don't come and go with the wind or come and go with ups and downs, but are willing to die for people they don't know. And when one of their own dies, they make this memorial and they say, never forget it. In a world today where it's all about smokes and mirrors and about perception and image, in a world we're not quite sure anymore what's fake and what's real, where good and bad seem to change with the weather, we're looking to find something like this. I remember as I knelt at the grave of Richard 
Lindsay Gad. I was so grateful that my name is Neil Lindsay Ryan. It means something. But what about that statement that haunts us at the bottom of the graves of all of these soldiers? I'm going to read the passage that it comes from. If you've got your Bible or your iPhone or whatever, it's in John chapter 15 and it starts at verse 9. Have a listen to this. It says, As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Uh, I've told you this so that your joy, my joy, may be in you and your joy may be complete. Listen to this. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. Then he lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. And you know what John is saying there? Be under no illusion here. This love is rare. It's not Jesus saying, look, I think you should be loving people. Let's join in with John Lennon and just say, love, love, love. All you need is love. No, this is rare. This is unnatural this is incredible this is supernatural but it's relational it's not a warm fuzzy feeling it's uh, God has loved me I have loved you I want you to love who others you don't get to choose that now, I could get all theological this morning and blind you with Greek and talk about all the different kinds of love. There's eros love and phileos love and agape love. But you know what? Jesus says, don't get complicated here. He says, just love the way you've been loved by God. It's all Piper this morning, I know. I'll tell some stories about the other kids later. But about a month ago, Piper gave me a little note. It was quite uh, extensive. It basically said, dear Pa... I love you. Don't you love those notes? Do you know what the first thing I thought of when I got that little note? What does a nine-year-old know about love? She hasn't even experienced life yet. <laughs> she hasn't been hurt by love. She doesn't know the complexities of love. But she says, dear Pa, I love you. How do you reckon I felt? Do you know what I thought after that? I thought Piper is loving because she's been loved. That's all. She knows what love is because she's seen it and experienced it, and so she's able to love. So what is it about the love of God that calls out to this deep longing that is the same as this except different? that said, this is it. Well, listen to what Romans says, Romans 5. It says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. I like that. I'd like to think I'd die for a righteous man. I probably wouldn't. <laughs> I'm not that brave. But let's say today I would. 
Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Man, that's a bit different, isn't it? Jesus died and loved those who didn't have one reason to be lovable. You know, perhaps I'll put it this way. Faith answers the question, where will you go if you die tonight? You heard that old expression? Well, faith answers that question, where would you go if you died tonight? But love answers the question, how will you live if you wake up tomorrow? That's always the problem, isn't it? The world of pride, Lord, if I die tonight, take me to heaven. But if I wake up tomorrow, how am I going to live? How am I going to live when I walk out the doors here today? Is it going to make any difference that I was in church, that I took the Lord's Supper, that I looked at this box, that I remembered what happened 103 years ago almost to the day? You know, I once heard a bishop who said this, why is it that wherever Jesus went, there was a revolution, and wherever I go, they pour me a cup of tea? I love that. Wherever Jesus goes, things happen wherever I go. Let's have a cup of tea. I'll tell you what the difference is. Love is revolutionary. It's not sedentary. Be careful when you decide to love people. It's revolutionary. That's the difference between religion. Religion thinks that if you do all sorts of good things, God will just love you. No, God started with people in their mess and said, I love you here, way before you're capable or even thinking of getting out of this mess. You know, he touched people with leprosy. He ate with tax collectors. He talked with a Samaritan woman who'd been married five times. In fact, he embraced every category of sinner that you and I could think of and says, I love you here right now I've often said it it's the reason I love being a preacher because the message is so unbelievable I don't have to categorize people I just have to tell them that God loves them and it's a revolutionary love not a warm fuzzy love do you know, in the early part of last century, one of the thriving businesses was making buggies. You can probably imagine that. Everybody was getting around in horse and buggy. But in the advent of the Model T Ford and the automobile, the buggy business began to die out. And finally it dried up completely because nobody wanted buggies. And somebody observed that they went out of business because they thought their business was making buggies. And they were wrong. They were in the transportation business. And when they forgot their real purpose, they went out of business. You know, that makes sense, doesn't it? I think that's a good word for the church. Somewhere on the line, the church thought we we're in the conversion business. That was the only task we had, was to convert people and get them off to heaven. 
Someone along the church thought we were in the church growth business, that a sign of God's favour was to have a church of 10,000 people. This is it. This is what God wanted for us. So, so somewhere along the way, the church thought we were into the I have answers to all the impossible questions of life business. Uh, folks, I want to put it quite crudely. It's none of that. We're in the kingdom of God business. You say, that's a bit spooky. No, no. Our mission is not just to preach a message, not just to build a church. It's to engage in human suffering because that is where the impact of our sin and our brokenness and our need is most keenly felt, isn't it? You start there. If God loves me here, when nowhere else in the world do I deserve to be loved, that's God-like. You know, Jesus began his public ministry with these words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim, you know this verse, don't you? What is it? <laughs> Good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the... Somebody say prisoners? Yep. What else? Recovery of sight to the blind and to set the oppressed free. Man, who doesn't come into that category? You know, let me say this. To reach out to the poor has always been ad admirable. People applaud you for reaching out to the poor. But to challenge the political and social and economic systems that create poverty will get you into trouble. Now, let me tell you, if you love somebody, you won't just love the poor you'll advocate for the poor and you will call out those things that are making people poor does that does that ring true because love is relational and the one thing that Jesus came to do for us was to advocate to stand in the gap between God and us and, and, and God says to us now or Jesus says as I've been loved go and love stand in the gap I loved I Oh, she's still here. Ava's here. I thought she'd gone. I thought it was time I talked about some of my other grandchildren. I just love it. The other day, Ava said she, had, she went out for dinner and she got pizza and it was a wacko pizza. And can I say nobody can consume a pizza like Ava? But it must have been a big one because she had some left over and she thought I'll take it home and have it tomorrow. Okay. And she walked down, I don't know where it was, Rundle Mall, and there she saw somebody who looked like they were in need and she saw her pizza and she thought, it's got to go. And so she gave it to this bloke. I love that. Stand in the gap. You've got something they need. Give it to them. You know, Bishop Oscar Romero, who was the martyred leader of the Nicaraguan church, once said this. When I feed the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why the poor are poor, they call me a communist. Interesting, isn't it? That's the challenge of loving. Loving will put you in a place where people will look at you differently. That's why people looked at Jesus and said, well, he kind of... Shows signs of being a Messiah, but he mixes in all the wrong circles. Talks to all the wrong people. 
Oops. I better finish up. Let me just finish up with this. I, I need some work done on my camper van. It's a good little segue, that, wasn't it? There's no way to move into this. And so I looked up in the yellow pages and I found this bloke that said camper van conversions and I thought he'll do. I rang him up and he was as grumpy as anything. And he said, oh, I want a window put in the side of the van. He said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah maybe I can't do it now. Call me later. So I waited two weeks. I called him back. I said, it's Neil here again, window in the camper van. He goes, oh, you again. Oh, okay, I might, but no, I can't do it now. Call me later. So two weeks later, I called him back. And he said, oh, I might be able to do it. And he's starting to warm up a little bit. You know, he said, I might be able to do it. He said, uh, I said, look, I'm going away in about three weeks' time. He said, come in after you get back. I said, blimey, Charlie, I don't know if this bloke exists. So after I went away, I came back. I rang him up. I said, I'm coming in. He said, okay, that'd be good. Did you enjoy your holiday? I thought, wow, he's warmed. <laughs> anyway, I get there. This guy would be in his mid to late 60s, European fella. And he started to tell me his story a little bit. He said to me, I've had a hard life. He said, it all started when I was called up to go to Vietnam when I was a 20-year-old. He said, it didn't go well. He said, that's why I'm living here across the road from the Centennial Park Cemetery. He lives on Gilbert Road, right across from the cemetery. He says, one day, he said, I'll die and they'll just wheel me across the road and drop me down a hole. I said, well, it's your lucky day. I said, because I'm a Baptist minister, I said, get them to let me know and I'll do a freebie. I'll drop you down there for nothing. And as I said that, he's got these tears running down his face. I thought, not everybody gets my sense of (laughs) humour. I think I've gone over the line. (laughs) And he said, Neil, I thought, wow, it's Neil now. First time I rang him, I was the whatever. He said, Neil, when I went to Vietnam, I saw things I cannot forget. He rolled up his trousers and there he's got a prosthetic leg. He said, I had my leg blown off by a sniper on the same day that the soldier friend right next to me had his face blown off. He said, there were things happened. There were 40 of us in my platoon. Only two of us survived and came home. He said, I cannot tell you how that's affected my whole life. He said, when we came home from Vietnam, I discovered there was such an antagonism to the war and people's anger was directed at us. He said, we were verbally abused and I was even spat upon. He said, I have struggled all of my life to understand what on earth I did in those years. He said, my marriage didn't last. He said, in fact, the only thing that has sustained me over all these years is that somewhere deep down inside of me, I know that God loves me. I said, really? Really? He said, my mum told me that when I was a little boy. And it's the only thing 
that I've been hanging on to. So I reached out and I gave this bloke the biggest bear hug he's ever had. And I thought, this is weird. <laughs> I went here to get some tradie to put a window in my van and I'm hugging him. <laughs> and he's crying. And I said to him, I said, Roy, I said, isn't it fantastic? I said, because the Apostle John said this, this is how God showed his love to us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sin. I said, that's what's held you together. Not that you were able to love God in the midst of all of this, but right through it all, God loved you. And he does. And he does. And he does. You know, this morning, we've honoured in some small way the story of our nation that calls us to stand in awe and remember the greater love that somebody showed for me. But we can't stop there. Because those men needed love like we need love. And so the big story takes us all the way to the cross where God says my love for you is not because you were good men and good women but because I love you when you're at your worst but folks we can't even stop there because Jesus said if you've known that love go back into the world and love like you've been loved it's a challenge isn't it I'm going to pray.